If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Many of you will have heard of the Rothschild dynasty, a name that evokes power and wealth. Yet the lives of half of the family's members have been largely unexplored. Historian Natalie Livingston, author of a new book, The Women of Rothschild, joined us recently to talk about the women who have shaped the family history, and in turn, the impact that they had on the upper echelons of British society from the 18th century to the present day. Putting the questions to Natalie was our digital editor, Eleanor Evans. So, Natalie, thanks so much for joining us on the History Extra podcast. Uh, And you write that the Rothschilds are one of history's most heavily chronicled, widely known and deeply mythologised dynasties. And while I imagine many of our listeners will be uh, familiar, could we start from hearing a little more from you on the family and what the name evokes? Well, the Rothschilds are possibly the world's most famous banking dynasty. And, you know, they, they made their money, obviously, through banking. They were famed for financing the Napoleonic Wars. Um, And the name has become, you know, synonymous with wealth and and extreme power. Uh, Wealth because the palatial houses that the family built, I'm sure you're familiar with Wadston, Mentmore, these extraordinary, magnificent houses. Um, So I think that's why the the Rothschilds have become synonymous with, with wealth and money and dazzling riches. But actually, the origins of the Rothschild family are far less salubrious than that and far more prosaic. And the family itself originated in the Frankfurt ghetto, which was, it's impossible to overstate just how horrendous the conditions were in the ghetto. There was no light in the ghetto. I mean, there were 3,000 people crammed into just 200 houses in a narrow, narrow lane. And the houses were built because there was so little space. The houses were built upwards. So there were these very, very tall, thin, narrow cantilevered buildings. And they kind of loomed over the streets, like almost, you know, doctors, you know, looking over the bed of a dying patient. It was very... It was very claustrophobic and the streets were replete with sewage. People who visited the ghetto commented that the the Jews in the ghetto were so pale because they weren't exposed to any daylight. So that is where the Rothschild dynasty began. And I do imagine that that is um, an aspect of the family story that is um, perhaps not as familiar to people. Um, and another aspect that isn't going to be familiar is is the women of the story who you write, they, they weren't just a female counterpart to a male line of Rothschilds. They were a dynasty of their own. So this brings us to your to your new book. What what What's behind this story that you're telling? I had heard of, of the Rothschilds before and I had heard that the founding father of the Rothschild dynasty, Mayor Amschel Rothschild, and his wife Gutler had had five sons who 
left the Frankfurt ghetto and went to the glittering capitals of Europe to make their fortune. What I didn't know is that Mayor Amschel and Gutler had five daughters. And this piqued my interest because the daughters have been edited out of history. So that was really where I where I began. So if we can start with with Gutler then, because um, it, she ties into this history in Frankfurt that you just mentioned, and um, how what what can you tell us more about her, and and how did she set the blueprint for how women in the family were expected to act? So Gutler was an extraordinary character, formidable character. She was born in the Frankfurt ghetto. She. Um, was married off at a very young age. In fact, at the time, one of the rules of the ghetto was that there were only 12 marriages, Jewish marriages allowed per year. So she was seen as being extremely fortunate to be married off. Her family, uh, the Schnappers, were actually far wealthier than the Rothschilds. So um, she came with a significant dowry to the marriage, which really helped Mayor Amschel launch his banking business. When they got married, they lived in a tiny, tiny house called the Himterfan, which means the back of a pan. And in that house, Gutla started having her children. In total, she had 19 children, uh, 10 of whom survived to infancy. And she started having one child after another after another while her husband was building this banking business. And she assisted him and she she was able to bookkeep and, and she helped she helped him tremendously to build the business while she was giving birth to this unbelievable collection of children. And the business started to boom. It started to things started to look better for them. So um, once they were able to afford it, they could they moved into a relatively spacious house in the ghetto called the Grunschild, which was still absolutely tiny. And you can imagine these 10 children squashed together in a tiny little living room and and, and the, the sleeping accommodation. Um, but nevertheless, Gutler was extremely proactive and extremely practical. And um, she educated her children beautifully. She taught them how how to run the business. She made them familiar with the paraphernalia of a of a banking house. She was extremely frugal, and she was also very funny. And there are lots of you know sayings that that have got that have gone been passed down um, through the generations. That uh, that you know that Gutler said that are you know extremely funny. For example. Um, she lived until the ripe old age of 96. And when she wasn't well, just before the end of her life, a doctor was summoned and the doctor said, I'm very sorry, uh, Mrs. Rothschild, we can't make you any younger. And she said, no, no, doctor, what you need to do is make me older. And that's one of the, that's one of her, you know, funny little sayings that she had. But she was, she became mythologized in the family as the ultimate quintessential matriarch, fertile, frugal, extremely practical, wonderful mother. So she, in a way, she gave, well, she gave birth to this dynasty. Yes, yeah, she, she became this highly, highly mytholi- mythologized figure. 
Yes, and she certainly sounds like a, a formidable and influential part of the early days of this dynasty. And before we go any further into more of, of the women that you write about, I wonder if we could talk about a few of the factors that her that mean that her story and the other stories you're discussing just haven't been surfaced yet. Well, the the root of the exclusion of the women of the Rothschild family actually lies in the will of Mayor Amstel Rothschild. In 1812, when he died, he wrote a very definitive codicil of his will in which he excluded any women from working in the banking house. The only time a woman was permitted to work in the bank was either to be an archivist or a bookkeeper. So effectively, he disinherited the women of his family and he relegated them in doing so to second-class citizens and footnotes in history. So their story became almost irrelevant and they were they were excluded in a in a empirical written document and that that unfortunately set the tone of the family for the next 250 years right pretty conclusive but but as we'll see a lot of the women did find ways to uh, have influence and, and work along, alongside the family and within the family um, i wonder if we can say a little about who you're writing about it's more uh, is it fair to say it's more the Rothschilds or the women who married into families who were more in England? Well, the Rothschild family is vast. I mean, the, the, the family tree goes on for pages and pages and pages. And if I would have attempted to do the history of the whole of, of the Rothschild family, it would have taken more than one lifetime. And I think the book would have been unreadable. So what I did is I followed the journey of the women of the English Rothschild family. And obviously, it's a very, very small slice of family history. But I, I hope that the characters who've been uncovered, interesting, illuminating, fascinating women. Absolutely. Well, if we can turn to a couple of them. We've got uh, the, the difference between marrying out of the family and marrying in of the family. And there are there's a daughter of um, Gutler and then there is a daughter-in-law that you write about side by side in the first part of the book. Can we talk about those? Absolutely. So Gutler's youngest daughter called Henrietta, Henrietta, I don't know, I don't know how how it would have been pronounced, um, was an extremely feisty, headstrong character. And she was the, the last of the daughters who had was unmarried. And Gutler, a typical Jewish mother, was very concerned about marrying off her daughter. And she made it her mission to, to try and find a, a suitor. Henriette was did, had other ideas. She wanted to choose her husband. So she there were a couple of matches that were arranged for her in Frankfurt and Henriette was having absolutely none of it. So eventually her mother thought, you know, I can't, Gutler thought, I can't, I can't deal with this anymore. She needs to be shipped off to London so that her brother, Nathan, and his wife, Hannah Barrett Cohen, can deal with her and try to, to get this, this very headstrong uh, woman married off. Eventually, um, Henriette actually chose her own husband, who was Abraham Montefiore, who was the brother of Moses Montefiore. So um, she moved to London and Nathan's wife, Hannah Barrett Cohen, was an extraordinary, extraordinary woman. Uh, Nathan met Hannah Barrett Cohen, when he came over to England to do an apprenticeship. 
and he was for her father. And he was a young man and she was a very, very young girl. And I imagine there must have been a moment where this very rough, uncultured German boy from the ghetto turned up in the, at the house of Levi Barrett Cohen and they would have opened to open the door and he would have been absolutely overwhelmed by how cultured her family was. And she wouldn't have been able to understand him because he didn't speak any English. But somehow the two have forged this amazing connection and they got married. And it was actually one of the most strong and enduring marriages in the Rothschild history. And Hannah was an amazing woman because she really helped Nathan to build his business. And at the same time as building his business, she was aware that the Rothschilds, as a Jewish family, had a communal responsibility. The more successful they became, the more powerful they became. Hannah knew that they had a responsibility to represent the Jewish community of Britain and stand out as as real as, as role models. So she made it her business to educate her children to the maximum. They were so cultured. They had the best music teachers. They had the the best literature teachers. They they read prolifically. And Hannah made it her business to ensure that you know, her, her children felt comfortable in English society. And in fact, she did the job so well that her youngest daughter, Hannah Mayer, actually felt more comfortable in upper-class English society than she did in her Jewish community. And that resulted in her falling in love and marrying a Gentile a man called Henry Fitzroy, which was the first time in the history of the family that a, a woman had married out. And at the time, this was extremely scandalous. The family were furious. The brothers were absolutely incandescent with rage. It was seen as a huge betrayal. Um, and it was it was a very, it was a huge decision for Hannah Mayer because she had to renounce her Judaism. She had to give up her family. Her mother wasn't even allowed to accompany her to her own wedding. The only member of her family who was in the church was her brother, Nat. And in order to marry the love of her life, Henry Fitzroy, she had to sign a document in which she said that she'd wanted to be a Christian since the age of 16. So she really had to give up a huge amount of her heritage. And she was facing a life of, of great isolation. So it was it was a very... It was a very traumatic and poignant story. And I can't imagine how difficult it must have been for her mother to see her daughter go through this. Yes, very, very, very poignant indeed. And and I think the um the shifting world of, of alliances and sort of um, families coming together is a really fascinating aspect of your book. And I wanted to, to touch a bit more on, there are, uh, seem to be a lot of sort of uh, matches between family members. What can you say about that aspect? One of the, the uh, central tenets of Mayor Amschel Rothschild's will was that the family, the Rothschild family, needed to stay together at all costs. The integrity of the bank, the integrity of the business was paramount. And that meant that the Rothschild name needed to be as pure as possible. And unfortunately, uh, that gave birth to a policy called endogamy, which was cousin marriage, um, marriages between nieces and, and uncles. 
And the purpose of, of this arrangement was to ensure that the, the Rothschilds were stayed Rothschilds as, as long as possible. But obviously, you know, there, there were some love matches, but there were also some marriages where it wasn't a question of love and it was just a question of familial responsibility. And the, 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 the responsibility to retaining the integrity of the Rothschild family was much more important than the feelings of the people who were getting married. For example, Henrietta's daughter, Louisa, was forced into a marriage with Anthony Rothschild, who was one of the sons of of Hannah and Nathan. Now, Anthony and Louisa were profoundly unsuited. Anthony was the playboy of his generation. He loved boxing. He would go to Paris a lot. He would entertain prostitutes. He was a real bon viveur. Louisa was quiet. She was very reflective. She was lacking in confidence. And, you know, she really needed somebody who had a a sensitivity and a sensibility to understand that. Unfortunately, she wasn't afforded that luxury and she was catapulted into this loveless marriage for the sake of the name. So there's this quite stark contrast between marrying into the family because of responsibility and marrying out of the family for love. And and it was was a no-win situation for the women because for Hannah Meyer, who married for love, the consequence was isolation. And for Louisa, who married for the sake of family integrity, the consequence was being married to a man who she had very little in common with. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. A journalist uh, who came to interview her for The Times said, uh, in order to prepare for a meeting with Miriam Rothschild, imagine Beatrix Potter on amphetamines and you come close. But I think it was also interesting to me how um, a woman marrying into the family became a Rothschild and then a Rothschild, a woman born a Rothschild who married out, was then considered part of another business. Well, that was also one of the conditions of this totemic will that set the tone of family life for years and years to come, that once a decision had been made to marry a woman out of the family, that was it. She had very little claim on on the family and and its riches. Right. So if we can go back to um, Hannah Rothschild, then, uh, wife of Nathan, um, can we talk more, a little more about her role in society, the sort of how she went about uh, establishing the family in society and her role as a hostess? Yes. So Hannah's um, vision for her her role in the Jewish community is actually really quite groundbreaking because at the time women were only able to exercise soft power and a lot of business and a lot of politics was conducted in the ballroom so one of the responsibilities that Hannah had was was to build up a a really influential social circle who would be entertained in their palatial mansion and 107 Piccadilly so she put together a wonderful selection of politicians and aristocrats who would come to their house, be entertained with delicious food. She'd she'd she brought in a phenomenal French caterers. This this fine 
French caterer called William Jarin who would make these wonderful artistic confections and their wines would be the best wines in in town and and entertainment and the parties would be absolutely superlative. But another thing that she recognised pretty early on is that in order for the Rothschilds to have an impact on on society at large was for them to have a political representation. And, And Hannah made it her mission very early on that she was one of her sons was going to be a Jewish member of parliament. This was a time when Jews were not allowed to sit in parliament and certainly not in the Lords. So she went about, well, she spearheaded a campaign for Jewish emancipation. And because of her extraordinary efforts, her son Lionel became the first Jewish member of parliament. So her her strategy, as it were, to assimilate her family into English society was two-pronged. It was social and it was political. And, and that was extremely, extremely forward-thinking. Yes, I, I think, you know, very clearly um, they held a, an influential place in Georgian London. And I think that the work, you know, is so clearly very important that these uh, Hannah and many women in the family were doing. But um, I wanted to pick up on something you write, that the women of the Rothschild business tirelessly turned the wheels of industry, but were often rewarded with contempt. Could we pick up on that attitude a bit more? And how, how were these women regarded in, in terms of the business of the family? Yes, well, unfortunately... And this was largely before Hannah, because another wonderful thing that she did was she turned the tables on the men because she was actually very, very financially savvy as well. But I'll come on to that in a minute. The letters I read um, from the brothers in in the family, James, Carl, Amschel, were extremely misogynistic. James likened um, having a wife to having an essential piece of furniture. It was... You know, they were very, they were extremely dismissive and contemptuous of women because they were, women were considered to be second class citizens. And that was enshrined in the family manifesto, as it were. So it was, it was, that was, yeah, you know, to, to go through these letters in which there's one misogynistic jibe after another was, was, was quite something. But the amazing thing about Hannah was that she she was an extremely gracious, intelligent woman. Uh, And she actually developed a wonderful skill for high finance, which surprised the the brothers of the family. And so much so, she was so skilled that when Nathan died, he actually wrote in his will that he wouldn't want any of his brothers or any of their children to make a financial decision without consulting Hannah. So that was quite an achievement. Yes, so that feels a, 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 like a real turning point in the the roles of of uh, women in the family. We've we've talked a little about uh, what happened to women then who strayed outside of those family expectations with um, Hannah Meyer's marriage. How how else were women sort of breaking the boundaries that are set for them in sort of as we move from Georgian times to the Victorian era? Who what 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 moves are the women making delicately, as you put it? Well. I think the remarkable thing about the Rothschild women is that there's no part of society that their influence didn't reach from it 
finance, campaigning, Jewish literature, politics, visual art, geopolitics, Israel, science, music, feminism. I mean, there's there's no area where you can't see their influence. I, I mean, it's it's hard to kind of pick out. There are so many examples that that it's it's hard to pick out. I mean, one of the one of the women who struck me most profoundly was Henrietta's daughter, Louisa, who was so shy and was so retiring and was lacking in, in confidence so much. But she was a, a passionate bibliophile. She loved reading. And this was at a time when it really, women's reading wasn't particularly encouraged, let alone women's writing. And what she did was absolutely amazing. She set up uh, a series, what she she wrote with her sister Charlotte, a series of booklets called the Cheap Jewish Library, which were for working class Jews. This was at a time when she wasn't even allowed to put her name to it. So not only her, not even the other members of her family knew that that was what she was doing. So she produced these wonderful, wonderful booklets, which were short stories about Jewish life that were distributed to working class Jews. And um, she managed to find absolutely brilliant writers. There was this um, writer called Grace Aguilar, who was a Portuguese um, Jewish writer, fantastically brilliant, um, who wrote The Women of Israel. But her career began when she wrote a, a short story for the cheap Jewish library. And I just I found it profoundly moving that even at, at the time when when uh, Louisa couldn't put her own name to her work in the 80, in, in the 1840s she was so passionate about her craft she was so passionate about the written word that she produced pamphlet after pamphlet after pamphlet because it was it was a passion to her and she's left that as a legacy and it's um it's amazing that that hasn't come to the come to the fore until well, I wasn't aware of it until now. It, it does seem that um, there are these sort of um, private passions. I'm not sure if they're entirely private, but individual passions that drive so many of these women. And I hope you'll forgive me in skipping a few generations because I did want to make sure that we talk about Miriam. So yes, could well, can you maybe set Miriam? Uh, so where are we in in the family's history now? So we're coming to early 20th century, and the First World War is about to break out, and Miriam's parents are. Charles um, at Charles Rothschild and his wife Rosika, who was this feisty Hungarian, extremely sporty character. She actually, um, Miriam's mother Rosika, invented the overarm serve in women's tennis. She was a tennis champion. She was an ice skating champion. And so Miriam's parents, well, Rosika, when she got married to Charles, moved to England, and they had uh, three daughters. Miriam, Liberty, Anika, and a son, Victor. Uh, Miriam was brought up in the traditional Rothschild mode. She wasn't educated, but she was incredibly intellectually curious. So as soon as she was able to do so, she educated herself. So she went, she went to Polytechnic and she taught herself science. And not only did she teach herself science, she became a world expert on fleas. So fleas were her passion. Insects were her passion. She actually got it from her father. It was really in her blood. And she catalogued millions and millions and millions of, of fleas. She wrote 
tens of papers on fleas. She wrote books about fleas called, her most famous book was called Fleas, Flukes and Cuckoos. But fleas were just, and science were just one tiny element of what made Miriam this extraordinary polymath. She was a precocious environmentalist. She refused to wear leather and she was famed for wearing these um, gum boots, even to uh, Wellington boots, even to Buckingham Palace. Um, you know, she she absolutely refused to bow to any pressure to, to wear leather. She was passionate about environmentalism, about wild wildflowering. She was committed to um, the treatment of, of mental health. She used her scientific knowledge to, uh, she turned her scientific knowledge to the treatment of mental health at a time when mental health was not considered, was, was not treated in the same way as, as physical health. And it was at a time when uh, mental there was electric shock treatment and people who were mentally ill were subjected to lobotomies. Unfortunately, Miriam's, Miriam's father, Charles, committed suicide in, in 1923. And Miriam's sister, Liberty, suffered from terrible schizophrenia. But Miriam was very, very ahead of her time in looking after her sister. She took her sister out of the sanatorium, out of the psychiatric homes that undoubtedly, without Miriam's intervention, she would have spent the rest of her days in. And she took her back to her home and she cared for her. And not only did she care for her sister, but Miriam set up the Schizophrenia Research Fund, which really looked into the best ways to treat mental illness. And that was a very, very pioneering move for the time. So not only was Miriam fascinated by mental illness, but she also helped contribute to the Wolfenden Report in which homosexuality was decriminalised. So she was, in every sense, a polymath and a Renaissance woman, one of the most extraordinary characters um, in the 20th century. A journalist uh, who came to interview her for the Times said, uh, in order to prepare for a meeting with Miriam Rothschild, imagine Beatrix Potter on amphetamines and you come close. And I think that perfectly sums Miriam up. Yes, it's a, it's a great quote. And, and you know, um, her work just sounds so progressive and so remarkable. And I wonder, could we mention her work at Bletchley as well? Yes, she, she in, in the Second World War, she, as if it wasn't enough to, to have made all these extraordinary scientific discoveries, she was a, um, a codebreaker at, at Bletchley Park. But the wonderful thing about Miriam is that, you know, ever the Rothschild, she didn't like the accommodation at Bletchley Park. So she would leave every night and go and stay in, in Mentmore, which was the, the Jacobethan mansion of, of one of her cousins. So there was always a nice Rothschildian twist to everything that, that she did. And is it fair to say that Nika's story is is somewhat different? They're quite different sisters. Well, they were individuals, striking individuals in the, in their own right. And um, Hannah Rothschild wrote brilliantly about her great aunt Panonica Nika in in her book The Baroness. Um, the interesting thing about the sisters is uh, their passion for life, their, their their passion, Miriam's passion for science. And Nika's passion for for jazz were both derived from their father Charles. Nika was a fascinating woman. Uh, she was looked for the first part of her life that she was going to follow the traditional Rothschild trajectory that she was going to get married and have children, which she did. But she was also passionate about jazz. And one day she heard a, a record by a jazz musician called Theolonius Monk, and 
she listened to it and she listened to it again and again and again. And she'd found her calling and she realised that she wanted to dedicate her life to jazz and Theolonius Monk. So she left her children and she moved to New York and she spent the rest of her time immersed in the New York jazz scene and helping Theolonius Monk in so many different ways to develop his his genius. So it was a, it was a truly fascinating a, a fascinating life and Nika is a real outlier of the family. Yes, I, I mean they're all fascinating stories. As you said, you've explored uh, so many stories in this book, but there are um, still so many that that are out there. And I wonder if I could ask, what are your hopes for more stories of the women of the Rothschild family? Well, gosh, I I, I hope that somebody is going to take on the French Rothschilds. I, I I hope that there are so many more stories. There are so many women. I haven't had time, you know, I didn't have time to write about Alice Rothschild, who was so incredible at, at Wadston, all of her letters. I just wish I would have had the time to cover her. I also hope there's going to be more in-depth research about the more modern women. I think Razika and her incredible political work and her contribution to the creation of the Balfour Declaration, in which uh, the document in which the British government committed to supporting um, a Jewish homeland in Palestine. That needs to be explored further. I think Miriam's work needs to be explored further. Miriam undoubtedly merits a, a biography of her own. Miriam's daughter, Rosie, um, who founded this feminist magazine called Spare Rib, she desperately needs a biography of her own. So there's so many avenues of research and investigation for historians. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a limitless treasure trove. So I really, really hope there'll be a lot more. That was Natalie Livingston. The Women of Rothschild, the untold story of the world's most famous dynasty, is published by John Murray Press and is out now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brushney Colley. collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.